passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. part of a series that we're doing at Christmas time called One-on-One -on -one with Jesus, where we're going one-on-one -on -one with the different Bible characters of the Christmas story. As you know, uh, Jordan went one-on-one -on -one with Mary and told us a little bit about her, and Pastor Stephen went one-on-one -on -one with the wise men, told you a little bit about him. Then Pastor Chris from the Spent Spirit Lake campus came down and went one-on-one -on -one with the shepherds and told you about them. And so I'm here to go one-on-one -on -one with Joseph. And I thought, well, that'll be a little challenging because I had never really heard anybody ever preach on just Joseph. I mean, has anybody had a sermon on Joseph before? Like, yeah, that's what happened in Spirit Lake. Nobody put their hands up. And I thought, well, there's certainly got to be a bunch of stuff out there about him. And so I started to research and I started to realize, you know, I have a really large library with well over 5,000 volumes that I can work through electronically. And all nobody in like history has preached a message on just Joseph. Like the best I got was a devotional. And I'm like, oh boy, well, now what do I do? Well, here's my little motto, boldly go where no man has gone before. I know that's Star Trek, but I mean, you know, I, I'm going to go preach on Joseph. Hopefully this will work well. And uh, I think there's actually a lot to learn about him. And it's a lot that we're going to enjoy as we study him today. So, by the way, um, the way I like to do it is I encourage you to use your outlines. I gave you a pretty good outline. Take those outlines out. Fill in the blanks as we go through those. I'm going to begin with a little bit of background on Joseph, and then we'll get into more details about Joseph. So let's begin with his background. And this is something we all probably know. Joseph was a guess. Carpenter, yeah, you find that in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. So all you guys who are blue-collar workers, all you guys who work with your hands, who sweat to make a living, well, Joseph is your man. He is that kind of guy, working really hard during the day in a blue-collar job. Interestingly, uh, why it says in our English translations that he was a carpenter, the Greek word behind this is the Greek word tecton. And it literally means a worker in hard substances. So in the ancient world, a worker in hard substances could be a carpenter, but they also could be a stonemason. So Joseph could have been a stonemason as well as a carpenter, which means he could have made furniture with wood. He could have built the house, but he also could have laid the foundation in the house. He's that kind of a guy. To give you some interesting historical background, we know at the time when Mary and Joseph were raising Jesus in Nazareth, there was a Roman city called Sepphoris that was about an hour's walk away from Nazareth. And the Romans were rebuilding that city after it had been destroyed. And if you know the Romans, they like to do everything in stone. It is very likely that Joseph walked an hour and worked in Sepphoris as a stonemason, and then had a commute of an hour home from Sepphoris to go back to Nazareth. So he's like a very typical blue-collar worker, because you know those guys are always driving a long way to get there to do their jobs. Well, that is literally what Joseph had to do, probably, for work. 
Um, now, we know he's a blue-collar worker, but we don't really hear much about Joseph after the very early years of Jesus, after the birth narrative of Jesus. In fact, we don't really hear much about him. Uh, in fact, the last time we heard from Joseph when Jesus was age 12, and that's the next fill in the blank for you. What we see is that Joseph wasn't just a blue-collar worker who was a hard-working man, but he was a godly man who literally made sure he got the kids in the caravan and they went to the Passover in Jerusalem each year. So this is the kind of guy who makes sure the kids get to church on Sunday. That's literally what Joseph is. And it wasn't church on Sunday, but it was they went to the, the Passover in Jerusalem each year. And that's sort of the last time we hear about him. He just disappears from the scene. That brings us to our next point of introduction, which is this. And this may be a surprise for a number of you. Joseph most likely died before Jesus' ministry began. Now, I should actually rephrase that. Joseph most likely died before Jesus died is probably a more faithful way of saying that. You say, really? I've never heard that before. And why would you say that? If you go to John 19, verse 26, you remember Jesus at that time is dying on the cross. Mary is one of the women at the foot of the cross. And he, Jesus entrusts the, keep of Mary to, the keeping of Mary to John the Apostle. Now, here's what's interesting. Who would normally be in charge of taking care of Mary? Joseph. Like, he's the husband, right? That sort of goes with the husband job, right? Well, yeah, you take care of your wife. But if you're dead and gone, in the Jewish culture, who's the next person responsible for caring for Mary? Jesus as the firstborn son. And then Jesus turns and gives the care of Mary as mother to John, who was at the cross at that time. So most likely, it seems that Joseph died before Jesus died. Now, while the Bible doesn't tell us much, as I said about Joseph, other than the fact that he was an ordinary guy, he was a hardworking guy, he was a godly guy, and many people would typically overlook Joseph in society because he looks like an ordinary fella, God did not overlook him. God took special notice of him. Just as God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus, God chose Joseph to be the foster father of Jesus. God noticed something extraordinary about a very ordinary man's life. And that, to me, means I think Joseph is worth studying. Even though the Bible doesn't tell us much about him, he must have been an extraordinary man if God chose him to be the foster father of his own son. So like I said, the Bible doesn't tell us much, but we'll see what we can unearth about him this morning because I'm sure it'll be a bunch of jewels for us to learn. The Bible actually gives us, us two accounts of Jesus' birth. You know, the first account that is most popular is the one that's found in the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is of Jesus' birth from really the side of Mary. In fact, uh, 
Luke, it seems, actually interviewed Mary because there's a lot of details that only Mary would know. The other account of Jesus' birth um, comes in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew seems to give us the account of Jesus' birth from Joseph's side of the equation. And that's why we're going to focus in on Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which is the verses that we had read to you this morning. Now, as we go through these verses, we're not going to just look at them in the typical chronological way. We're going to look at them, but we're going to have a special focus on what we can learn about Joseph from them. And what we're going to see is that for Joseph to have Jesus in his life, it took a lot of courage. Folks, nothing has changed. Just as it took great courage for Joseph to have Jesus in his life for that very first Christmas, it takes a lot of courage for you to have Jesus in your life this Christmas as well. Now, some of you are wondering, really? It does? How does it take courage? Well, let's put our finger in the text and find out why. Let's begin at the top. Verse 18 begins by giving us really some background to sort of set the story that we're going to study here. And what we learn is this. Mary had a very unexpected change in her plans, didn't she? Very unexpected. We find that in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now that's a really condensed summary of what happened with Mary. There's not many details given. But remember I said that the Gospel of Luke which also tells the story of the birth of Jesus, gives it more from Mary's side. And from Mary's side, we find a lot more details of how this actually transpired. Because in the Gospel of Luke, we hear about the angel Gabriel who come and meet, comes and meets with Mary, the one who says that she is highly favored, the one that says that she will conceive a son, and all these details that all get packed into one verse in Matthew actually have a number of verses in the Gospel of Luke. Let me go ahead and read a few of these verses from Luke to get more details on the backstory. It says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I have a get, just a question for you. How old do you think Mary was likely when this 
scene took place? What do you guess? Some of you are going to say, what, 20? Good. Somewhere between ages 12 and age 14. Do you think this rocked her world? What would it be like if you had a 12 to 14-year-old daughter who comes home to you and says, oh, by the way, Dad, I'm pregnant. I mean, how does that go over around the dinner table? Not too well. And how does it go over when you actually are engaged to another man and say, oh, by the way, uh, Joseph, I'm pregnant and you're not the father. Folks, this does not go over well. While Mary is highly favored by God, and obviously she is the earthly mother of the very Son of God, this announcement completely ruins and obliterates her world and her life. God comes into her world and turns everything completely upside down. I mean, in our world, we have single unwed mothers. We know what kind of devastation and how hard life is for single unwed women. But in the Jewish world, at this time, it was far worse. You would bear much greater shame. And here's what I love. Look how Mary responds to this announcement, which turns her world upside down. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. When God flips her world upside down, and she was a good woman. She's a righteous woman. She's a godly woman. And now, all of a sudden, everything is upside down. She doesn't argue. She doesn't complain. She simply says these words, Okay, God, I am here to be your servant. You can use my life in any way you see fit, no matter how hard it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how difficult it is. You see, to Mary, what mattered most to her were not her plans for her life with her goals. What mattered most to her is that she would be available to be used by God in any way He saw fit. Even if it was incredibly hard, and at times it would be incredibly painful. This is incredibly important for us to learn. We haven't even gotten to Joseph yet. We're still on Mary in the background. But I want to ask you, how do you react when God suddenly and unexpectedly changes your plans? How do you react when God sends your life in a direction that you never wanted it to go or never expected it to go. Isn't the first thing we usually do 
start yelling at Jesus or yelling at God, complaining to God. What are you doing in my life, God? When we all know that God knows exactly what he's doing. He has everything completely under his control. That he's changed our plans for a reason. But oftentimes we don't have that reaction that simply says, okay, God, I'm your servant. Use me in any way you see fit, even if it involves changing the plans that I've had for me in my life. Now, we, I think this is just, before we even get to Joseph, something that is worth us learning about. How do we react when God changes our plans in a way that we don't expect them to go? Now, folks, this Christmas season, I guarantee you God is going to change your plans, suddenly and unexpectedly. It may be in a very minor way. It could be in a very major way. It could be that you have dinner planned at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on December 25th, and people are going to arrive there. They're going to be all there on time, and you have it all laid out in your mind that they'll all be around the dinner table and all of a sudden, uh, family is late, and you're reheating the food, and it's about 5 o'clock, and Christmas dinner is now getting dry and crusty, and your plans have changed. How are you going to react? Sometimes God will change our plans in big ways. You may be diagnosed with cancer. You may find yourself out of a job. In fact, Jordan told me this week about one person that at one time at least had been associated with Crosswind Spencer who had their house destroyed in the winds this past week. How do you react when God changes your plans suddenly and unexpectedly? I just think it's worth noting from Mary, okay, God, I'm your servant. Use me in any way you see fit is the spiritually mature way to respond. And remember, She's only a 12 to 14-year-old girl. Simply amazing, isn't it? Now, as we get into the text here, let me just uh, give you a little aside to those who are a little bit more of the spiritual geeks among us. You guys like to get under the hood a little bit with the text. It says here in Matthew 18, this is the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. That word birth, by the way, is the, I think it's the Greek word genera, if my mind remembers that correctly. Interestingly, if you go to Matthew 1, 1, where it says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it's the same Greek word, genera. Now, what's important about this? Matthew 1, 1 through 17, gives us the origins of Jesus on the earthly side through the lineage of Joseph. When you get to verse 18, it gives us the origins of Jesus on the divine side, how he was conceived by God. So all of a sudden, we see how Matthew is putting things together. Matthew 1, 1 through 17 tells us he is fully man. Beginning in Matthew 1, 18 tells us he is conceived by God. He is fully God. Jesus is man and he is God fused together. And you see this in the Greek by, Joseph, by Matthew using the same Greek words, the word genera, to start each list. Now let's get back into the story a little bit. I told you Joseph or Mary is very young, ages 12 to 14. Joseph is a little bit older, probably a late teen, early 20 person. 
the reason he would be at that age is if you were going to marry someone, you sort of had to get a job. You sort of had to establish yourself. You had to have a little income to have a family. And so the guys were typically a little bit older when they wed. The other thing we learned is that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They were engaged to be married. And here we learn a little bit more. You should know there are two stages in a Jewish wedding. There's what's called the finishing period, which was the engagement, and the hupa, which was the marriage ceremony. Uh, this kedushin and hoopah are very similar to our engagement and wedding part, but they're a little different. I'll explain to you the differences. Uh, if when a guy gets engaged to a gal in our culture, the guy proposes to the gal, hopefully on his knees, and hopefully she accepts. That's not the way it worked in the Jewish world. What happened is the two families actually got together. And the family sort of negotiated it and made up what was the marriage contract. And when you, the marriage contract was entered into at the beginning of the Kedeshine period, you were engaged, but you were technically married at that point. You simply had not consummated the marriage at that point. So Mary and Joseph, when they're engaged, they are formally married as the paperwork section would go just waiting to consummate that marriage. Now, what would happen is uh, you would be engaged from six months to 12 months, usually closer to 12 months. One thing that was different about the way they did it is these couples that were engaged spent almost no time together in the Jewish world. Now, in our world, that's when you spend lots of time together, right? Not in theirs. But here's what was going on. At that time, the man who was going to be the husband was working really, really hard. Why was he working so hard? You had this little thing called the dowry. You had to sort of buy your wife, you know, put some money into this thing. And if you had a very desirable wife, that would cost you a lot of money for the dowry. And it had been negotiated, remember, at the beginning of the engagement period, what the dowry would be. If you had sort of an undesirable wife, maybe you just had to give them a lame chicken. I mean, you know, but you know, most likely it was, a, it was a lot of work. Now, this dowry money, what was it used for? It was used for two things. One is it actually helped pay for the wedding a little bit. Because if you realize, the weddings were long. Uh, you remember Jesus at the wedding of Cana where he changed the water into wine? They were costly. It was a week-long party where you fed the entire neighborhood. Which is why when Jesus turned the water into wine, they, they, they ran out of cash, is what it boiled down to. They didn't have any more wine. Couldn't afford to feed the neighborhood. The other thing dowry did besides uh, enable this week-long party, it was sort of a marriage insurance policy because it went to the father of the bride and he was supposed to keep that, not spend that. And if something happened to his daughter in her marriage, like her husband died or her husband divorced her, that dowry money was there for her to fall back on and have some money to provide for her in that time. But if you were a guy that stayed married to his wife, that was a good deal. Because what would happen is, when your in-laws passed away, guess what you got by way of inheritance? 
the money that you paid for your wife. So what's going on at this point is Joseph is working really hard. Joseph has not been spending time with Mary. Joseph is saving money like crazy. He's looking forward to the hoopah period of his marriage where they hoop it up. The week-long wedding party. I mean, we just have a marriage and a reception. And look how much money we spend on just like one party. Imagine if you had to feed everybody for a week. So you get the idea the Jewish people know how to celebrate. Now, for Joseph, his world is falling apart. He knows that Mary went away to a relative, an elderly relative named Elizabeth. Well, that seems pretty safe. But she comes back and she's pregnant. This woman he thought that was a godly woman doesn't appear to be a godly woman. She comes back and she's pregnant and he's not the father. Can you put yourself into Joseph's shoes at this point? Can you imagine the heartbreak he felt? The confusion he felt? The turmoil he was going through? Oh, sure, Mary said, oh, the Holy Spirit is how I've been conceived this child. Well, I'll tell you what. My daughter just came home from college. If she came home pregnant and she said to me, I'm pregnant and it's by the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't be believing her. I mean, God would have to tell me personally to believe that one. Because it's not like something that happens every day. So you know that what happens is Joseph's dreams are shattered at this point. His heart is broken at this point. That brings us to the next verse, verse 19. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And here we get a little window of insight into Joseph and his character. He is a just man. He is a righteous man. He is a godly man. He takes his Bible seriously. He tries to follow God's word. He wants to please God and do the right thing. And here's where it gets uncomfortable. Because he knows from God's word what it says about a woman who is engaged to a husband and is unfaithful to him during the time that they are betrothed to be married. And it's not pretty. This is where it would come to his mind. Matthew 22, 23 through 24. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the city, to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. Joseph knows that Mary deserves to be stoned for what he believes was infidelity that took place. Just so you know, the Romans would not typically let this kind of uh, stoning take place when they were enrolling in, over Israel. 
That doesn't mean it never took place. Historically, we know when we look at the documents that sometimes stonings did take place, not as a judicial thing, but as an act of mob violence that the Romans couldn't control. Joseph knows that is the kind of uh, hardship and consequence that Mary is facing. But he knows he does have two other what would be called legal or legitimate options to be able to take with her. And they are this. Number one, he could go to the Jewish courts and to have the marriage annulled. What that would be is a very public declaration uh, that he was not the father of the child in her womb. This would result in a very public vindication for Joseph, making him look good, but it would be an incredible public humiliation of Mary and her family because it would make him look good by publicly making her look extremely bad. You know, it's sort of like Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, once you hear the name Kyle Rittenhouse, like for the next 50 to 100 years, everyone's going to remember that name and have like an association of what happened with it because it was a public thing in the courts. The same thing with Mary. If he goes through with this, it makes him look good, but makes her look bad. So he's deciding not to go that direction. What he decides to do, it says he's going to divorce her quietly. What that means is the two families would meet together with witnesses. They would draw up a, a divorce paper, and this would not publicly humiliate Mary's name, but also would not completely publicly vindicate Joseph's name. So he was willing to take some of the shame upon himself at this point. Now, at this point, we get into really the main part of our text. We've covered the background. We've set up the situation. Now we begin to look at Joseph. And here's the question we're going to answer. Why does it take courage to have, for Joseph to have Jesus in his life? And why will it take courage for us to have Jesus in our life? Looking at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Begins by saying, as Joseph considered these things, <laughs> he's thinking about all of this. I mean, if that was you, wouldn't you be doing that? The picture is Joseph is lying in bed and his mind is going a million miles an hour in all different kinds of directions. What should he do? How could Mary do this? How is all this going to turn out? And as he's thinking about these things, he finally falls to sleep, probably late, late at night when he's filled with anxiety. And then just as God broke into Mary's world to suddenly and unexpectedly change her plans, God now breaks into Joseph's world to suddenly and unexpectedly change his plans. An angel of the Lord speaks to him in a dream and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Here we learn a little bit more about Joseph. While Joseph is a righteous man, 
and he's a God-fearing man. At this moment, he's also a cowardly man. He is. He's afraid to take Mary as his wife. And this brings us to our first lesson. It is this. If I'm going to have Jesus in my life, I must have the courage to be shamed for Jesus. If I'm going to have Jesus in my life, I must have the courage to be shamed by Jesus. Remember, up to this point, Joseph is a poor man, but he is a righteous, hardworking man who has a good reputation. But if he takes Mary into his life, all of that is going to change. If he weds Mary, the town gossips will think that is him admitting to possibly being the father of the baby in her womb. What guy would marry a woman who is carrying another man's child? It's sort of like saying, yeah, I'm the guilty party. He's not, but for the rest of his life, he will bear that shame. The people who at that point were laughing at Mary would then begin laughing at Joseph. The people who were making fun of Mary would begin making fun of Joseph. For Joseph to take Jesus into his life, he needed to have the courage to literally destroy his reputation. Mary's disgrace would then become his disgrace. Mary's shame would become his shame. The only way for him to escape this would be to divorce her. And the more publicly he divorced her, the more he escaped it. But to marry her and bring Mary and baby Jesus into his life would completely ruin his reputation. The one he had worked so hard to earn. And by the way, you have to understand this culture. That reputation that, he was, ru that was ruined would seriously stick. Now, in our culture, people forget those things. In the Jewish culture, people do not forget those things. I'll prove it to you. Thirty years after this, when Jesus is having his ministry and he is getting popular, the religious leaders take a dig at Jesus. We read about it in John 8.41. Look what they say. It says, you are doing the works of your father. And they said to him, well, at least we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Thirty years later, the Jewish leaders are going after him because he looked like he was illegitimately conceived before the wedding night. And if that is what they're doing to Jesus 30 years later, imagine what it was like for Mary and Joseph the 30 years before. For Joseph to have Jesus in his life, it's going to have, take courage. Courage to destroy his reputation for the sake of having Jesus. And isn't that the way it is for us today? Today, if you're going to have Jesus in your life, it's not like you're going to be super popular in this world. It's not like you're going to be super admired in this world. 
In fact, usually people laugh at you in this world. Like, you seriously believe, like, everything in the Bible? You believe actually, like, that crazy stuff? Yeah, I do believe that. And they look down on you. They marginalize you. In fact, Paul even writes about this. I was laying in bed early this morning thinking about this. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for Him. Suffering, is a normal, suffering for Jesus is a normal part of the Christian life. Now at Christmas time, many people like to talk about Jesus but not many people are willing to have their reputations ruined to follow Jesus. Isn't it true? It's because they're cowards. To have Jesus in your life takes courage to allow Him to mess up our plans and allow Him to be, allow us to be looked down on. Now, before we get too discouraged with this, I want to bring something else up. When you have the courage to lose your reputation, when you have the courage to lose some of the respect in your life to follow Jesus, it's actually really worth it. I was thinking about this recently. You know, there are all kinds of small-town gossips that were making fun of Mary and then making fun of Joseph. How much of a difference did they make in this world? We don't know their names. They left almost no impact, apparently. Oh, heartache and difficulty and pain for Mary and Joseph and Jesus, but really no significance in the way of impact. But Mary, Joseph, Jesus, we know their names, in particular Mary and Joseph, because they did something significant with their life for Christ's kingdom. If you're willing to be shamed for Jesus, if you're willing to be laughed at, for Jesus, because you're going to follow Jesus and stand up for Jesus, I guarantee you, you will end up doing something significant for Jesus and His kingdom. Your life will make a difference. Oh, the world may laugh at you, but in God's kingdom, you're making a, a difference. That brings us to verse 21, where it says this. Well, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sin. This brings us to our second point. It's this. If I'm going to have Jesus in my life, I need to have the courage to let Jesus be in control. The courage to let Jesus be in control. While the Bible is very clear that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, but he was just the foster father of Jesus. Now we see that Joseph actually doesn't get to name Jesus. This is important because Joseph is not in charge of Jesus. That's why he doesn't get to name him. Jesus is actually in charge of Joseph. Now, I know some of you guys, like you guys I've known forever. You know, and I, others of you, I know you have kids. And the neat part about having kids is when you have children, you get to what? Name those children because you're in charge of those children. It's sort of the right and authority that's given to you. You know, Elon Musk, he creates Tesla. He gets to what? Name Tesla. Well, here comes Jesus. And by the way, Joseph, you don't get to name him because you are not in charge of him. 
He is in charge of you. Now, today, lots of people talk about Jesus at Christmas. But they're cowards when they talk about Jesus. Because to them, Jesus is just a consultant in their world. To them, Jesus is just there to give them a little bit of advice to help them live their life, that they're living for themselves. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to say, I'm not in charge anymore. Jesus, you're in charge. I submit to your directions for my life. That, my friends, takes courage to get out of the driver's seat and to obey what God says. I was even thinking about this last night about the Lord's Prayer. Isn't this about the Lord's Prayer? It says, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about my will be done. I'm not in charge. It's your will because you are in charge. Now, here's my question for you. If you were to look at your life this morning, who's in charge of it? Are you the one who's in charge of your life? Or is Jesus the one directing your life? Many people talk about Jesus at Christmas but they don't have enough courage to get out of the driver's seat and let Jesus be in control. They think they name him when reality is, nope, Jesus names you. He's in charge of you. Now, I understand why there's some hesitation in all of our lives to let anybody be in charge of us. I mean, think of all the stuff we see in the news about our government. I mean, aren't we a lot of times people rebelling against the government? Like, I don't want them to be in charge because whenever they're in charge, they're going to mess my life up. We hear that all the time, right? <clears throat> but here's what I wanted to tell you. Jesus is different. Jesus is someone who's actually worth putting in charge of your life. Because, folks, you can trust Him. Understand who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us Jesus is incredibly great. God the Father planned creation, but Jesus the Son is the one who made every single thing in the universe. That's how big He is. But Jesus the Son loves you. He chose to set aside, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, all of the worship, all of the honor, all of the privileges and glory he was experiencing in heaven to humble himself, to fuse himself permanently and irrevocably with a human body in the womb of Mary, to become one of us forever so he could be the perfect substitute to die for us, die in our place for our sins, to take an eternity of wrath that we deserved into His self to bring you to God simply by trusting in what He has done for you. That's love. That's incredible. If there's anybody that I would trust my life with more than I even trust myself, it would only be Jesus. Isn't that true? Jesus is better at being in charge of your life than you are at being in charge of your life. 
This morning, if you're somebody who's here and you've never genuinely asked Jesus Christ to be in charge, if he's been in the passenger seat and you've been in the driver's seat, I want to ask you today if you would trade places. Ask Jesus to be in charge. That is what it means to be a Christian. God, whatever you want, I will do it. I'm not the one who created the universe. I'm not the one who died for me. You deserve to be in charge. And if you do that this morning, the Bible says you will become a Christian. If you do that this morning, the Bible says you will be born again. The Holy Spirit will make you into a new creation, and you'll become part of God's family. So if you came in this morning, and you were in charge, and God wasn't, please, I ask you right now, in your heart, pray and ask Jesus to switch places and to take the steering wheel in your life. Would you do that? This brings us to verses 24 and 25. Said, then, then Joseph woke from sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we've seen parts of courage in Joseph's life. It took courage to have Jesus in his life because he had to bear the, bear the shame of Jesus. It took courage to have Jesus in his life because he had to let Jesus be in control. Now we see this. If I'm going to have Jesus in my life, I need the courage to actually obey God's words, even when they're hard. And this is something I love about Joseph. He obeys God's words instantly. He obeys God's words quickly no matter what the cost or no matter what the inconvenience. You know what it says? After God spoke to him, or the angel spoke to him in a dream, he woke up and took Mary as his wife. How long did he wait? Uh, two weeks? Two months? He woke up and took Mary as his wife. He immediately obeyed God. That took courage. Now, folks, what do we do when God speaks to us through His Word? That ever happened to you? You're reading along, and maybe the Bible talks about forgiveness, and that we have to forgive, and those who are forgiven must be forgiving, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says to us, yeah, remember that one person I really haven't forgiven? Well, I'll just keep reading, and I'll maybe get to that later. I'll delay obedience. I'll push off obedience. And you know why we do that? We're cowards. It takes courage to obey God's word as soon as you know what he wants you to do. Doesn't it? Joseph did that. That's what we're called to do. Obey instantly and completely. Now, by the way, this theme of instant obedience and complete obedience, it continues in Joseph's life. We go to Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 15, which has the story right before um, the wise men. It says this, Now when they had departed, speaking of the wise men, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until Herod's death. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now here's where it's interesting. Many of you didn't probably didn't realize this, but after you know, Mary and Joseph came from Nazareth, they went to Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But you know they stayed in Bethlehem after Jesus was born? Did you realize that? They were there for at least a year. The wise men, by the way, were not there at the birth of Jesus. They come about a year after the birth of Jesus. Say, really? How do you know that? Put your finger in the text. What does it say in Matthew 2.11 about the wise men's visit? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Jesus was not born in a house, was he? He was born in a stable, in a manger. So here all of a sudden we find that Mary and Joseph have settled in Bethlehem. Now Joseph has a house. He has a, a mortgage. Now the word for child here is interesting. It's a very specific word. It's the word for toddler. Uh, moms, I've got to ask you, uh, how old are children when they begin to get up and walk? What? About one? So uh, Jesus is about one years old at this point. Joseph has a mortgage. He's a carpenter. He has all of his tools. Because, you know, those carpenter guys, they have a truck full of tools, don't they? But God comes into him, speaks to him in a dream, and says, get up and leave. They're coming to kill Jesus. And in the middle of the night, he obeys instantly and completely, packing what he can on the animal, leaving behind his house, leaving behind his tools, leaving behind everything. It's, once again, the courage of instant and complete obedience. We find that picture theme picks up again. Matthew chapter 2. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Here we go again, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, and he would be called a Nazarene. A couple thoughts on this. Joseph was in Bethlehem. Remember, he got on his feet financially, and God called him to leave. He left in the middle of the night instantly. Now Joseph is in Egypt. He gets on his feet financially. He has his mortgage. He has his tools. And God calls him to leave. And what does he do? Obeys again. And 
interestingly, he comes back and God eventually directs him back to Nazareth. And he goes there. Do you think he wanted to go to Nazareth? That's right. The answer is no. Nazareth is the town that knows Mary's background. Nazareth is the town that knows about Jesus' conception before Mary and Joseph went. It was not a fun place to, grow, to raise Jesus in. You say, why? Remember when Jesus has his ministry? We studied this in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus comes into Nazareth, and do they receive him in Nazareth? No, this is just the carpenter's son. In fact, what do they do? They bring him to the brow of the hill upon which the city was built, and they went to throw him over the cliff. They tried to kill him. That's not a fun city to raise your child in. But if God directs him to go there and raise his family there, that's where he will go. The courage of obedience. So here's the conclusion. Asking Jesus into our life will take courage. Number one, I must be willing to have the world laugh at me because of Jesus. We saw that with Joseph. Number two, I must be willing to give up my up control of my life and let Jesus be in charge. And number three, I must be willing to obey what God asks, even when it's hard. Let me jump down to point three, which I think is just something I was thinking about when I was writing this sermon. You know, what do Mary and Joseph teach us about what it means to be a Christian? Here's a little thought for you. We're like Mary, aren't we? We're helpless, rejected, and full of shame. We need someone to save us. Jesus is like Joseph. Just as Joseph chose to give up his life to be Mary's earthly Savior, Jesus chose to give up his life to be our heavenly Savior. And he died for our sin to bring us back to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's real easy to talk about your son Jesus at Christmas time. But today we learned that if we're going to have your son in our life, it'll take courage. I pray that we would be men and women of courage to do that, to be willing to be shamed for you. I pray that uh, we would be men and women who are willing to let you be in charge of our life, not just our assistance, but directing us. And I pray for anyone who is here this morning, who in their heart, prayed to you, asking to switch from the driver's seat to the passenger seat, to let you take the steering wheel of their life this morning. May you continue to faithfully work in their life the born-again experience that began today. And I also ask that you'd give us the courage to be men and women who are obedient to your word, that like Joseph, when you speak to us, we would obey your word, no matter how hard it is. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.